On this week's episode, we get a great shave with Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Would you rub piss on your head to grow your hair back? How do you season human meat to taste? And does Joanna matter? Find out now, you're listening to 24 Flames Per Second. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 24 Flames Per Second. It's a podcast that roasts the films we love the most. And uh, as always, I'm your host, Robert Borks. Everybody, welcome to the show. Um, and this week, we're heading to jolly old London town for a little bit of pie in uh, on Fleet Street. Um, everybody, this is uh, our Sweeney Todd and uh, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street episode. Um, another one in our list of food related uh episodes and you know whether you should be eating the food in this movie or not um either pre meat pies or post meat pies is uh i think it's a choose your own adventure decide what you want to do um and accept the consequences that come after um but yeah, everybody, uh, welcome to the show. We're here at the end of May. Um, we only got one more month left in season four of, of 24 Flames Per Second. It's very exciting. Um, and we're excited to kick off a bunch of new stuff um, starting at the end of this season, the beginning of next season. Um, and so strap in. June's going to be fun. Um, but before we get to that, we got to deal with this episode, everybody. Um, and so, yeah, we got a drink along coming up next weekend on the Patreon. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, but yeah, everybody, welcome to the show. Let's uh, let's get into it, and we'll start with uh, my co-host this week, the Miss Love It to my Sweeney Todd, Chris Pepper Hambrick. Hello, love. Hello. Oh, hello. How's it going? <laughs> I'm good. How are you, Robert? I'm doing good. Um, good. Yeah. Um, did you watch um, the movie this week? I did. I did mm-hmm. watch it. Mm-hmm. You said you own it. I do. Yes. Um, I'm an old musical theater junkie from back in the day, so Sondheim is one of my passions. Okay, cool. Um, well, what do you know about it, if it's a, if it's a passion? Yeah, so uh, the original musical uh, hit Broadway in 1979, um, and if you don't know anything about Stephen Sondheim, he's one of the rare uh, modern musical theater writers who writes both his lyrics and his music, so um, there's kind of a little bit of a different flavor to that. Um, if you've seen Into the Woods, um, he also wrote that. So that's something else that film goers might be familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. But the story of Sweeney Todd is actually a lot older. Uh, it originally, uh, the character originated in a short story in uh, 1846 called A String of Pearls. So um, anyone who wants to talk about like the decadence of modern media or cinema or whatever, like, We've been putting people into meat pies as long as there's been stories. So um, this guy's got a long history. So this is just kind of the latest iteration. <laughs> Interesting. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. I thought For some reason, I thought this was somehow Jack the Ripper related. No. Um, Victorian London was just super obsessed with, like, people who cut people up. So, cool. you know, like, there's a lot. There's Springhill Jack. There's Jack the Ripper. There's Sweeney Todd. There's a lot of stuff out there. Um and then when it comes to this movie, um, I think Sondheim was, you know, reluctant to sort of give his okay. Um, but he apparently ended up being, you know, 
pleasantly surprised by this film. Um, uh, he does not often sort of give his blessing to to his musicals appearing on film. Um, so uh, yeah, um, that's what I know. Nice. Well, very good. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing. That's yeah, I learned something. I hope everybody did. Um, and so, well, very good. Let's get on into our panels this week. Um, and we'll start with the roasters, as always. Um, first up, we got a theater educator, Disney fan, and Zac Efron expert. Uh, you can find her talking about board games on social media, board board games. And you can find her new podcast, The Villainous Podcast, uh, where you get your podcasts. And on social media, The Villainous Pod, Alex Garamoni. Hello. Hello, how's it going? Good. I cooked pot pie for dinner today. So brave. <laughs> and uh, it really <laughs> felt like a thematic sort of evening to begin the, on that note. So was it I'm a frozen ready. or from scratch? No, it was from scratch. I was making uh-huh. it with the kids that I uh, teach with. So You like, made it out of I... kids. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I let them cut things with knives and their small fingers could have easily slipped into my pie. So... We'll see. Okay. Um, this will be public and your employers. Just kidding, Tyler. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, anyways, very good. It's great, it's great to have you here. Um, thanks for having, thanks for having pie for dinner. Um, and also roasted this week, actor and dungeon master to the stars, which you can hear him um, on season two of Save the D8 podcast, which just launched. Um, within the last couple of weeks when we're recording this. Um, and you can find that at Save the D8 Pod uh, on social media. Evan Christopher. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me here. Hello. How's it going? Uh, you know what? Great minds think alike. I also have pie for dinner tonight. What? I picked up a strawberry pie from Sherry's. Oh, hell yeah. That I got to dig into because I was like, this is because I want, I love strawberry pie. And two, mm-hmm. it made me think of, you know, what? the. Were you but like that? really sweet blood, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I will. I will confer to your uh, imagination of blood. Also, it's Sherry's, and you can't beat it. Yeah, Sherry's pies are good. I know. Sponsored by Sherry's, I would love that. Twelve ninety nine for the pie. Sh- Sherry, you could email us at twenty four flamespot at gmail dot com. Um, but uh, but yeah, Evan, uh, very good. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, and on the defense this week, director of photography, Tracer and aerialist. And you can find his new podcast premiering tomorrow, uh, May 27th. Is that the right? Did I get the dates right? Great. Good. Yep. Um, called Gaze Making. And you can find it on social media at Gaze Making Pod. Uh, Grayson Hay. Hi. How's it going? I did uh, not have pie for dinner. Interesting. Defense. Yeah. New better. Roasters. Dug right in. Because I know what's in those pies. Yeah, no matter where they come from, some kind of humans in there. Um, it's good to have you here. Welcome to the show. Um, <clears throat> and so yeah, let's uh, let's get started with Sweeney Todd. Um, we'll start with the same thing we always start with: movie in a minute. Um, and so yeah, give us the full plot synopsis of Sweeney Todd, the barber of Fleet Street, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Uh, spoilers and all. We'll give you sixty seconds and a three count. Are you ready? I am ready. Well, very good. Let me get my stopwatch out because my phone went to sleep. One second. Okay. Uh, well, here we go. In a three, two, one, and go. 
A typical judge uh, hates uh, the fact that there's this beautiful woman who is uh, in love with a different man. So he uh, gets the man arrested and he goes away. And then he comes back as Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd um, is basically wanting to exact revenge on the judge. And so he sets up a barbershop because that's what he was before he went away and um, plans to get uh, the judge in his chair so that he can kill him. Uh, he meets Mrs. Lovett, uh, they, uh, who uh, basically makes a deal with him and uh, uses uh, the meat from the people that he kills uh, in order to improve her meat pie business. Uh, they fall in love. They get married. Um, there's a kid uh, that they sort of adopt who finds out about what's happening. Um, and then they put him in the jail um, or in the in the basement uh, where he discovers what's actually happening. Um, and then let's see. I am totally and doing it. you're out of time. Uh, close? Yeah. Uh, I forgot like the entire subplot of Joanne and Anthony. I mean, we'll um, hear more about this from the roasters. It may or may not be that important. Um, but yes, there's a romantic subplot between Sweeney Todd's uh, now grown daughter and um, this boy he met on the boat, Anthony. Um, <clears throat> let's see. What else? Uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, Sweeney Todd does ultimately get judge the judge. Um, and it's around this same time that Toby, who's the boy who got adopted, um, get, oh, let's see the, the twist that we learn is that Miss Lovett knew that his wife was actually still alive and he kills her and didn't know it was her. And then he throws Miss Lovett into the oven and then Toby sneaks up behind him and gets Sweeney Todd and Toby pieces out and roll credits. And that's Sweeney Todd, y'all. Um... So yeah, I think that's pretty. That's everything, right? I think I so. Think so. Um, oh, we missed the whole dueling barbers thing. Um, right, it's, it's you know Pirelli. It's fine. It's fine, Pirelli. Um, but uh, yeah, that's gonna do it for Sweeney Todd and for the summary of Sweeney Todd. We've got more show coming up. Um, but yeah, everybody, we'll take a quick break when we come back. Grayson, we'll get your opening statements while you're here. Defending Sweeney Todd, everybody. We will be right back. And we're back, everybody. Welcome back to our Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street episode. Um, and, uh, yeah, Grayson, right before the break, um, you almost made it to the end of the movie, just like Sweeney Todd. And then you got got. Um, Toby got you. Uh, in movie in a minute, um, but let's get your opening statements while you're here uh, defending Sweeney Todd. Sure. Um, so this, I, I, I'm a huge Sondheim fan just in general. Um, and um, as the first film adaptation, like an actual film adaptation, not just a recording of a stage production, um, I thought that it did a really good job of kind of bringing um, the brilliance of Sondheim um, to the screen. Um, now we will say we, they, they chose some very stylistic, um, and, uh, um, uh, stylistic, like director choice, um, in Tim Burton, which I think, um, for me actually really adds kind of to the character of the movie itself. Um, because it, Sweeney Todd, like if you, if you look at it from the, from the context, like from the, the text, um, it's a very dark film film but if you look if you 
uh, or a very dark piece. Um, and if you look at all of the stage productions, there's a lot of kind of like slapsticky stuff that generally comes into it, mostly around Joanna and uh, a- Anthony. They're kind of played as the um, comedic, um, the the comedic um, kind of levity of the of the sh- of the show, just kind of like comedic break. Um, and I think that the movie actually does a really good job of keeping like a really even keel on the tone um, where there's really, it's it's less kind of comedic and more just like actually like demented. Um, and I think that um, because of that, it actually is a stronger presentation than any of the, um, any of the recorded stage plays. So. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, roasters, I think let's start with the direction. Um, I think it was Evan, you were the one talking about Tim Burton in a pre-show, right? Oh, um, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, this is just like every other Tim Burton film. Throw in a Johnny Depp, a Helena Bonham Carter, uh, take out any practical effects of the love of what we had of Tim Burton back in the 80s, throw in a bunch of uh, CGI effects and... Yeah, that's what we got. I mean, this isn't any different than anything that Tim Burton has had since 2001. I mean, hell, when this movie was even starting to get made, originally it wasn't even Tim Burton who was to come up with it. It was, it was Sam Mendes. And Sam Mendes <gasps> was the first one to actually pen it and then got turned down. And uh, when he left to go and do Jarhead... Um, Tim Burton jumped at the chance to take it over because his other movie, Ripley's Believe It or Not, had fell through. So that's why he had come and take over for this part. If we actually look at Tim Burton's like career, you'll notice that he actually does um, embrace newer technology throughout his career rather than sticking to the tried and true of, of real practical effects. Because if you look at like Beetlejuice and, um, uh, to, well, I... Uh, yeah, Beetlejuice and, and and things after he leaned heavily on claymation, which was actually really popular at the time, rather than actual. Uh, and I say claymation; it's like stop motion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Rather than any kind of like actual practical effects or creature effects or anything like that. And so you actually do see in his career as he develops, he actually is embracing newer technology. And while by today's standards. Sure, the CGI does not look great. Um, it, it. I think, at the time that it was made, it was like pretty standard CGI for the time. Uh, maybe the opening sequence, notwithstanding. Uh, I will say that yes. Um, I'm. I'm not against the the use of CGI. Don't, um, don't uh, get me wrong for that. The the problem that I have with CGI is that there tends to be such an overuse on things, which is one of the reasons why I think I had said that he had uh, Michael Bay this film, because in the use that you could see for his earlier films, like uh, Pee Wee's uh, Big Adventure or with Beetlejuice um, and having a lot of that claymation was uh, an add on to the actual practical effects or the costumes that were already made up for those. So they're more of an addition to it rather than being the main focus. Whereas in this movie, the very first scene that we get to see right off the bat is an animated uh, London-esque Victorian scene, which 
I mean, how many other studios that already have these like pre-built scenes that are so beautifully well done that they could have gone and get that. But we see, we see constantly with um, the animated blood, uh, the constant running around and the cuts, like this thing has been CGI'd more than, than um, the latest uh, Godzilla versus Kong movie. It's <laughs> a bold, it's a bold suggestion. Just I, I, I think but. I have not seen that yet. Um, There's a shitload of CGI in it. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I can only imagine crazy. it's Godzilla versus King Kong, but that's not yes. what we're here to talk about. I think that my main problem with the direction of the movie is like, you chose musical theater, you chose Sondheim, which in the community of musical theater, Sondheim is like, the elite stuff. It's hard to do. It's not simple. It's not something people pick up and just go with. But I was reading some interviews with Tim Burton and Helena Bonham Carter was like, yeah, I was so surprised he chose to do this project because he hates musicals. And I was like, what? Homie, you're picking to do God tier level musicals and you don't even like them. And it just seemed to me like such an odd choice to choose to do a project for something that you don't necessarily care about. Not to mention, listen, Sondheim, you love him or you hate him, but his music isn't something that you just walk around humming the rest of the day. It's not something people typically walk away from, like being able to sing along to in their own time, unless you're a super big musical theater dork. Yeah, I'm looking at you two on Zoom right now. <laughs> We're grinning and giggling right now. Unless you're a big dork, you're not walking around going, wait, Miss Atoll, wait, and like running around your life like that. It's it's tough because he chose a difficult musical for people who aren't into musical theater to get into. And then he didn't give it the love, you know? I want him to love it. You know, I want him to caress that movie musical. That's what I want to see. Can I interject something real quick, too? Because um, also in my research that I found, Tim Burton had seen the stage musical back in the 1980s when he was a student. And he said and he actually said that he had loved it. And his way, his best way to describe it was it was a silent film with music. So it's a silent film. Because they had music. They had music. I, I have a question for both both sides of this debate. Um so it can be hard to launch a popular, you know, big budget movie musical from a, from a popular stage show, right? Um, and so there's a lot of considerations that go into it. So how do you guys think they handled, like, you really, you're really not going to get the original cast most of the time. It's not going to draw in the people. You're not going to get funding, right? You got to get people that, that um, you have to have a lot more audience for a movie to be successful than you do for a stage production, for example. So how did they deal with those compromises? Like, what do you think um, the upshot, we now have a big budget Hollywood movie version of a really popular musical that we didn't have a version of on, on film in this way. So I would love for both of you guys or all three of you to address sort of those compromises and how this movie comes out of that. If we can't just like all go to Broadway and see it. Yeah. I think that they didn't compromise well. Right. So I was surprising to me that you said that, that cause Sondheim doesn't frequently give out like movies, his rights to his shows. So Sondheim was involved at several pl 
pieces of the casting process. But he was not crazy about Helena Bonham Carter or Johnny Depp to take on the roles, which are arguably the like meatiest roles in the show itself. And I feel like we went with the options that were the Tim Burton choice instead of someone who could really carry, you know, I wanted feel more from Sweeney Todd and from Mrs. Lovett. For example, the when he walks in her shop for the first time and she's singing The Worst Pies in London, in the stage version, there's so much humor in how she's slapping the pies and hitting the table while she's singing this pattery kind of song that it just felt like we missed the mark in this version of it. Because she was still hitting stuff, but in the stage version, it feels more like it's it's like percussion for her own singing, and she's really doing really interesting things. And I just felt like she was a lot more flat in that scene because I wasn't getting that Mrs. Lovett getting to play and be playful. And in the same token, I feel like Johnny Depp's performance was pretty, pretty one note, which was either like, I'm so haunted. And then I'm so angry. And it was like, homeboy, there's more in there. That's at least my thoughts is that they didn't respect the characters uh, in the casting choices, but rather they were like, we just want a big name that we can slap on this project and tie a bow on. Yeah. So like, I think that I, I, I think that I, I completely agree that they are different um different adaptations and, and interpretations of the characters, right? Uh, Mrs. Lovett in, um, in the stage production that I've seen, which is Angela Lansbury, um, which let's be honest, like no one is going to be a better Mrs. Lovett than Angela Lansbury. Murder she wrote. Right. Exactly. Like no one will do that. No one will do that better. (laughs) Uh, but, Angela Lansbury has a very specific kind of finesse and uh, panache, right? That just comes with who she is, that the interpretation of Mrs. Lovett through Angela Lansbury is a very different character than Mrs. Lovett as through Helena Bonham Carter, right? Uh, You can see a lot of the um, uh, Marla Singer in the way that uh, Helena Bonham Carter is presenting Mrs. Lovett, right? They are different coins of the same character. And as like actors really can like, while yes, there are some amazing character actor actors, Gary Oldman, um, people like that, most actors bring themselves to the character, right? There's always a kernel of truth in who they are that is portrayed through the characters that they're embodying, right? That's just kind of like you bring yourself, right? And it's just an interpretation of yourself within side of the confines of the of the character that you are embodying. And so like to expect Helena Bonham Carter to be as like high level panache as Angela Lansbury, um, I, I think is an unreasonable expectation for her as an actress. Um, and I think that uh, you know, because Tim Burton and Johnny Depp and uh, Helena Bonham Carter have worked together for so long, um, kind of to Evan's point, they're pretty much in every film that Tim Burton has made for God only knows how long. Um, there's a certain level of of these are the characters that you're going to get, or this is the flavor of character that you're going to get with these actors. Um, and I think that Tim Burton's direction leaned into that. Um, and the way that the the film was presented leaned into the talent that they had. Now, 
I'm not going to talk about whether they were a good choice or not, because um, I'm sure Sondheim would have, I mean, I'm sure Sondheim disagreed, uh, like what Evan said, but it's a Tim Burton film. Um, and especially during the time period when this movie was made, they're kind of a package deal, for better or for worse. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel like, and I'm sorry, this is kind of going back to director a little bit for this, mm-hmm. I apologize. Um, I, I feel like this is just a Tim Burton thing that he does. Uh, he typically likes working with a certain like actor or a group of actors for a while, like with um, working with uh, Michael Keaton, with doing Beetlejuice and the Batmans, and then with uh, his first wife, uh Lisa Marie, which was in several of his own movies until he met uh, Helena, which uh, in, on Planet of the Apes, uh, and then at that time became the uh, constant casting of Johnny Depp and Helena because I think that he just has this enjoyment of familiarity and just knowing his actors to do what he wants kind of deal, um, kind of afraid to kind of branch out kind of deal. Um, because like this movie in itself to me, it makes me think that it's it's like a reskinning of the 1974 Charles Bronson film Death Wish with a gothic uh, and musical kid uh, slap paint over it. Uh, it has very similar storylines, and within this, within this, it's us cheering on this antihero who kills um, who kills people. But in Death Wish, he's killing mainly like. Mur- like murderers, gang, uh, gang members, rapists, so forth and that. Here, Sweeney Todd just kills everybody until he gets to the main person that he wants as a judge. And throughout this movie, and I think we've already seen so far um, in this, um, the only two characters that any of us seem to remember is Sweeney Todd or Mrs. Lovett, where there's Judge Turpin, Beetle Bamford, Anthony, Joanna, Aldolfo, Tobias... You know, there's all these other ones, and nobody even remembers them at all because they're not brought up enough in this film to even be cared for. Nobody cares about Joanna and Anthony's, you know, side story. Uh, Judge Turpin, played by the great Alan Rickman, is practically forgotten. Timothy Spall, that guy was super popular during the time because of uh, Harry Potter, and he gets forgotten. And then, I mean, Sasha Baraconan is just left for dead in this movie. Just his his skills thrown to the ground. So, so I actually would like to address the Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, uh, elephant in the box. Um, so I, I, I actually think that, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen was, was picked to play Pirelli for a very specific reason. Um, and it goes back to the original stage plays or stage productions generally have some levity in them. Um, you know, periodically to, to kind of break up the tension of, of the show. And I think that Sasha Baron Cohen as Pirelli was specifically chosen because of his ability to add that levity by his very presence. Um, he doesn't actually have to do much um, for the little bit of time that he's in there because just the way that he embodies the characters, um, he's one of those people who can actually really embody uh, someone else other than himself, um, which is fascinating to watch. But just his presence and the way that he embodies Pirelli, I think, um, added that that tone of of um, levity to it whenever he was on screen. 
anytime there's a fake ass Italian, you know what I say? <laughs> Same thing that Sweeney said. This is piss. <laughs> Smells like piss. This is piss. <laughs> I I gotta come back around on also these side characters. These hoes don't matter. I hate Joanna and Anthony. We got this little girl who's in this movie for like three minutes sitting in her window singing to her birds we get it it's a bird metaphor we got it then we get it now we're done it's fine it's over let's move on why am i supposed to root for fucking caius from twilight boy anthony over here why am i supposed to care that he sees this girl through a window and he's like, I feel you, Joanna. I see you, girl. I'm going to steal you. And everyone's like, oh, my God, so hot. But, like, in reality, how is anything he did different from what the judge did? The judge saw Sweeney's wife and was like, I want that girl. And Anthony was like, I want this girl. And we're like, yeah, save her. Like, he doesn't know her home life. He doesn't know her deal. Maybe she's like vibing up in that house. She's not, but he doesn't know. I just find them so irrelevant. And like, as much as, you know, their limited screen time, I'm still like, I feel you, Joanna. Let's get to the next song. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just not interested in them. And I don't know why we should root for them. And I think that... You bringing up Pirelli's humor. There is humor in the original production and in the script that I feel like is so left. Like we left it on the table. We just like didn't take it. We didn't put it in the pies. It was like a little cockroach skittering around and she hit it, but she didn't put it in the pie. It makes me sad. That's Those yeah. are my thoughts. Yeah, just, there was like a lot of dry humor that would happen between Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett because you know, she's trying to somehow cheer him up and he just wants to be down in the dumps. And I feel like you lose a lot of that in this movie as well, for some reason. Yeah. I mean, like I, like I said previously, I think that, that, that is intentional, um, based on the, um, the talent that was picked for this movie. Right. I don't think that either of, of, um, Johnny Depp or Helena Bonham Carter, um, and I really can't say her name without saying all three names because I can never remember whether it's Helena or Helen. Um, and so it's always just, anyway, um, I think that, uh, you know, I don't think that the dry humor between them would actually work because they don't have that same chemistry. Um, and I honestly don't remember who the actor, uh, who played, uh, Sweeney Todd is in the Angela Lansbury production. Cause I honestly only remember Angela Lansbury, uh, from that production from what, from a, from a name standpoint, like, um, uh, cause also a huge murder. She wrote fan. Cause yeah, of course. Um, but anyway, um, and so I just, I, I think that, that the intent of this film versus the stage production was just different. Um, at least that's the way that I've always interpreted it. Um, there was another point that I wanted to make, but I can't remember what it is now. Um, well, before was we it do about? Wanna... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, was it about Joanna and Anthony? Or you got nothing oh. to say because they suck terribly. I, I, actually, <laughs> I, do have a, I, I do have a, a, a theory to posit about why they're in the film. Um, and it's something that you actually um, said. Um, he is no different than the judge. Um, and 
do we root for him? Not really. Like, I don't actually care what happens between him and Joanna. Um, I care what happens to Joanna because she's Todd's daughter. Um, but dude who was on the boat with Sweeney Todd at the beginning of the movie and doesn't really have any backstory. Uh, I don't actually care about him, uh, at least within the context of the movie. Um, and so like he is the same as the judge. And I think that it's interesting that Todd Sweeney Todd can't really see that, or at least doesn't let on that he sees that. Um, and like once Sweeney Todd learns that Joanna is his daughter, um, that's what Sweeney Todd focuses on is getting his daughter away from the judge. One thing I want to make sure we get to that before we run out of time is, uh, is the plot of the movie. And is there a lesson that we can take away from all this, which was something I think, I think it was Alex's point. Yeah. I got questions. Like <laughs> I'm here, I'm sitting here, I'm watching the movie. We're coming to the end. A lot of bodies, a lot of bodies are stacked up. I'm like, okay, what's, what's my lesson? Is my lesson that the 12 year old boys can kill once they're provoked to do so? Is it don't murder people and eat them as pies? Cause probably we should know that by now. Probably that should be a day one lesson that mom and dad are teaching us. Um, and besides that, it becomes abundantly clear that Sweeney's only goal is to kill the judge, right? So when he first has him in the chair, he's like, let's do a fake out and a bunch of duetting and like songs when it's like, homie, just slit his throat. Like, it doesn't matter if you get caught because you don't care. You don't care about yourself anymore. Like you have fully abandoned your humanity that you're sitting around slitting people's throats left and right. Just kill him, then kill Anthony who gives a rip and then leave London and move on as your weird murderous self. Like to me, it doesn't make sense. He has his goal inches away from him and he goes on. He's like, I had him like, yeah, bitch, you did. So get him. What do you mean? I don't understand why, why I'm supposed to continue to care after that point or what I'm supposed to walk away from this film being like, yes, I've learned so much about this value from this movie. Um, actually, I could say that there is a very good point that this movie does bring for as a lesson, as it just goes to show that you, this movie says that you need to kill whoever you can in order to get your goals to be made and to take any viable product to make into something that people want and sell it, even if it takes human labor and sweat and tears to be shoved in to feed everybody else to make yourself rich in order to get to the top. That is what this movie tells us. Eat capitalism. the rich. Eat the rich. There's capitalism all along. <laughs> oh, that was a great shirt, Chris. Um, so, do movies have to have a lesson? Don't get me started. It's a strong stance so, to take. No, I, I mean, like, what's the like, point? <laughs> like. I, I, I think that if you if you need to turn take a lesson, don't turn your back on a 12-year-old boy when there's an oven involved. <laughs> Same lesson you get with Hansel and Gretel. Um, <laughs> Those kids are going to fuck you up. Don't trust them. Honestly, what's missing from this movie is the line that they cut from the chorus, which is, freely flows the blood of those who moralize. Mm. Well, see, but they didn't include that. Right so you, you can't say that's the meaning of the film if they don't include it. <laughs> I'm saying 
the play itself says that moralizers will be killed. So, you know, maybe we should be moralizing at all. But this isn't the play. This is the movie. The movie's totally different. Listen, if Tim Burton had kept that in, I'd be zipping my trap right about now. But that coward didn't have the guts. I wanted to see, I would rather see Tim Burton go back to doing all of the claymation stuff for, for it. I think that would have made an awesome Sweeney Todd. Uh, I would I would pay to see a, a Sweeney t- like a claymation Sweeney Todd absolutely like uh, rank bass style yeah uh, just take Jack and Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas and dress them up like a barber and a pie lady wait didn't they already do that with Corpse Bride ah another one with Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter the Burton verse is yeah. strong it's strong I guess I'm just my pushback on like does it need a moral it probably should have one if we're gonna watch especially when it takes you to a place of such darkness i would say like when i'm watching something that has like such intense darkness of like murdering and eating people like i should hope that i walk away thinking or finding something to reflect on other than you know what uh I'm going to keep my eyes out for Tobias at all times in case that little boy going to find me in a basement. <laughs> he ain't going to catch me slipping. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I mean, like, so to be a little less flippant, right? Um, I think if you look at the movie as a whole, like it is an it's a story about what people do. Uh, so it's two, two sides of things. What people do to survive, right? Mrs. Lovett. She cooks people into pies and sells them because that's how she can survive. And then it's what do you do when you are that heartbroken and set on revenge? And what extremes are you willing to go to uh, in order to uh, feel better? Um, And so, like, those are kind of the two things that I reflect on whenever I watch this movie. Now, maybe, maybe because I've recently dumped I had a lot on my mind when I was watching this movie and feeling the the uh, the the heartbreak, um, but like you know, I, I certainly would not kill people, um, and I know that. Uh, I, I should really hope not, Grayson. I should really hope not. Um, I would not bake people into a pie. Um, even though I do come from a from a, um, I went to high school in a town that's famous for its meat pies. Um, yeah, like I, I just I, I think that it's, you know, it's it's a reflection on how extreme will people go in order to um, survive. Okay, okay, that's capitalism, babe. Um, on that note, I think it's about time we unmask. Uh, we can talk about how we really feel. Uh, and so, yeah, let's go around the circle. Uh, Grayson, we'll start with you. So, I mean, I like this movie. It's it's a fun watch um, when I want something in the background that I can sing along to, because I do. Uh, I've been singing uh, pretty much Sweeney Todd all day, uh, various different songs from it. Um, but, like, as a production, like, uh, I kind of agree with a lot of what people are saying about just it's, it's, it's very Tim Burton. Um, I was kind of, like, waiting for the Danny Elfman riffs um uh to 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 start playing in um in, into some of the Sondheim. Um which that would have been weird, but I'm kind of like curious 
in like, yeah, anyway, in the same way that you <laughs> want to look at a train wreck. Um, but yeah, so not the, not the greatest, but it's enjoyable. Uh, I still watch it occasionally, um, when I'm in the mood for it. Nice. Uh, Evan. Uh, yeah, it's all right. I mean, it's okay. Uh, it's a good one for, uh, like a Tinder Netflix and chill, uh, before the, the main event for the night. So yeah, you can put that on and Ugh. get to it. I got questions for the post show. <laughs> I have um, lots of questions too. I don't know if uh, I want the answers. Yeah. <laughs> I've been all have answers. Um, I've never seen the end of this movie. Oh God. Um, Alex unmask. <laughs> Please. I absolutely love this movie. <laughs> I really thought you were going to let me defend it. And I, I went to my composer friend who lives in New York for all my Sondheim bullshit. I brought up. I think it's malarkey. I love it. I love this movie. I think malarkey. Helena Bonham Carter makes me so happy. I love her wigs and everything. <laughs> Um, I really like this film adaptation. I think it always comes back to like, this isn't a musical that you're necessarily going to be able to find everywhere because it's Sondheim, which is hard to do. And it's very niche and specific, which is hard to find. And it was a musical I remember really liking when I was younger and I still really liked. And humming be damned, I will go around just like... <laughs> singing my meat pie songs i love it i even don't even have that big a problem with sasha baron conan in this movie <laughs> he's good uh chris i really want to like this movie mm-hmm. um i don't i've tried really really hard um and i think that like i'm glad that someone made an attempt it's one of my favorite musicals of all time um and like, no matter how hard I try, I'm just sad. Um, and, yeah, I just I just think it deserves better. And I, even though I think, like, okay, there's a lot of stuff there that works, but it just doesn't have the emotional impact on me that, like, listening to a recording of it does. Um, there's just the power of the music for me isn't there. This movie isn't necessarily for me. But, um, but yeah, every time I watch it, I just think, like, I got to go watch George Hearn again and Angela Lansbury. It's George Hearn and Angela George Lansbury, Hearn. by the way. Not, yeah, now know, that you no, say no, it, no, I'm, no. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, oh, yeah. No, I prefer Len Carew. We just don't have a film of him. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so I just – I really want to, and maybe I'm a little too close to it or whatever because, like, uh, there's also the problem where it's just harder for me to watch Johnny Depp these days and – you know, I used to have like the biggest crush from the age 11 or whatever. And so it's, <laughs> it's just hard to be like, oh man, I don't know if I can be into that anymore. Um, Grayson, you should have brought up his hair because I would have had nothing bad to say. I love his hair in this <laughs> His movie. hair is so good in this movie. Oh my God. Yeah, I want to like it more. Um, but I think I'm just, I have too much fondness for the source material. And you know what that can do to a person. Mm. Uh, yeah, I hadn't seen this since high school. And it's good. I don't have that much. I mean, it's just cookie cutter Tim Burton. It's at the point where he's just kind of being like black and white, a color here, a color there. Can you, I'm sorry. Can I pause there? Because can you, I mean, you're younger, but I, it's hard for me to imagine that we could get to a time where cookie cutter Tim Burton is a thing. 
Sorry, it is. Yeah. Like when he's yeah, his thousands out there. But you're right. His, you're right. His thousand stuff is is it's all the same shit. You're not wrong, but that's such a mm-hmm. that's such a bizarre statement. Well, I mean, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think hey, that they're weird shaped cookie cutters, but. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think that the big turnaround happened in 2001 because I think is Tim Burton was such a style. Yes, it was just <laughs> such a style until Planet of the Apes. Marky and then Mark. that's where it just. Anyway, fell, it just sorry. deflated. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this was like. I don't know. I, I think it's good. I could take it or leave it ultimately. Um but yeah, I wonder if the thing with it is that they put a lot of marble mouth people in these leading roles. Like Johnny, Johnny Depp is kind of mumbly. Uh, Helen Bonham Carter mumbles here and there a little bit. Everybody's just kind of like doing their best. And that's maybe well, the not. The dialect really doesn't help either. Like that little boy who's all cool and poor we smell the cool and I'm like, yeah, buddy, yeah. speech well, therapy. Hey, Dial it hey, down I- a little bit. I, I got to give it up to Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman killed it as a judge. He kills it as everything. Yeah. yeah. He's the goat. Um, he's a goat. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the guy, uh, Timothy Spala's Beetle was also really good. Yeah. Because he's he's somebody you love to hate right off the bat. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's kind of my that's kind of my opinion on it. It's I don't have a ton to say. It's it's fine. It's terrible. I'm not I'm not gonna. Put it on uh, when I'm trying to Netflix and chill with somebody. I'll tell you that much. Because uh, that's a weird energy to have on a date. But um, <clears throat> we can talk more about that later. Um, but, yeah, everybody, that's going to do it uh, for our Sweeney Todd episode here. Um, and we're going to keep talking uh, for our extended play. It's our post show just for our Patreon folks. Um, so if you want to get in on that and the drink along come in. Either th- it's either this week or next weekend. depends on how the days of the week fall. Um, head over to patreon.com slash 24flamespod. Um, and wherever you get your podcasts, go and uh, leave a rating, a review, subscribe even. Um, and, you know, it helps us make the show better and everything. Um, if you got thoughts on Sweeney Todd, you can email us at 24flamespod at gmail.com. Uh, if you work for Sherry's Corporate, you can also email us at 24flamespod at gmail.com because we like pie. Um, yeah. And uh, you can find us on social media at 24flamespod. And I want to give, let's see, we got people with new podcasts. Let's, everybody who's, let's go around the panel because we got everybody kicking off a little bit of something here that's new-ish as of this. Sorry, Chris. I don't think you have a new podcast. Do you? No. I'm looking for a job, though. So, you know. Someone hire Chris. She's great. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, let's start with, um, I'm going to go newest to oldest podcast thing happening. Not age, um, and so let's start. We'll start with uh, Grayson. All right, talk so about gays making, yeah. Reverse age, um, since I am the oldest here. Um, so yeah, so gays making is going to be a podcast where I interview um, LGBTQIA creators, artists, musicians, actors, basically anything. If you're creative, um, I will talk to you, uh, and we just are going to talk shop about art queer issues anything in between probably go off on tangents um but yeah it's just nice little interview to spotlight some some great creators out there nice yeah and that premieres um when this episode comes out it's may 27th so this is the may 27th 2021 yeah um and so go and check it out you can subscribe now it's out um it's presented by party fish media um and so let's see then uh alex do you want to go next 
talk about villains. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've got uh, the Villainous Podcast. It's a bi-weekly podcast on Mondays. It's a March Madness-style bracket debate-off to find out which villain, Disney villain, is the most villainous of all time. Uh, we have a fun rubric. <laughs> the rubric of evil. So you can play along at home if you want to. Um, but it's very fun. I had my mom and my sister do an episode. I've had married couples do an episode. I've got a really spicy one coming up with Rob and Evan that may or may not be out at this point. Um, but they're probably going to beat sure. his ass on they're that gonna episode. Yell. They're going to yell. They're going to yell at each other. That is what I do know. Um, but it's a it's a really fun time if you are a casual or a big time Disney nerd. Uh, just a cute little cute little fun fun Disney time. That's that's me. Yeah, um, and it's on social media at the Villainous Pod, um, yep. and you can find that also wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and then Evan, do you want to talk about season two of Save the D Eight? That is yes, fairly we, new. We are on uh, season two of Save the D Eight. Um, we season one went for about almost two and a half years, three, uh, and we racked up about one hundred and seventeen episodes by that time. So uh, don't feel worried. Uh, about that because I got one of uh, our characters, Kangor, to do an entire recap of season one. Um, so if you want to come into season two and kind of be like, what the hell happened back there? I got a whole like two to three minute recap for you already set up. Um, nice. Now, if D&D and fantasy is not your style, I also have a second podcast I'm in. That's a sci-fi futury cyberpunk called No Latency, uh, where I'm not the DM. I play a character uh, called Remy who is a tech guy with a TV forehead. So uh, if uh, that's something that interests you, check out No Latency wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Very good. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's see. What else do I say here now after we've got all the plugs in? Um, and so, yeah, everybody, um, that'll do it for this uh, this episode of 24 Flames Per Second. It's produced and hosted by me, Robert Bohorkas. It's co-hosted by Chris Pepper Hambrick. The panels this week on the defense were Grayson Hay and Roasting were Alex Garamoni and Evan Christopher. Our show music is composed and performed by Rob Joins and Will Paulson. And our network and co-op, Party Fish Media, is produced by Quasi Phillips, Will Paulson, and myself, everybody. Um, and that's going to do it for... Uh, for this episode and if you go and subscribe you'll be right on track to uh, catch us next week with another food related episode we're doing sausage party next week um, and I'm roasting on that one which I don't do that often but I couldn't not for this so um, you're going to lose that one too don't start with me um, <laughs> and so there are no losers here Evan there will be losers on that one I'll tell you that much <laughs> Um, and it's the audience that watches Sausage Party. Okay, come back next week, everybody. Um, and so, yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Bye, 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 bye. Fish media. 
Partyfish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.